Welcome to the Broadcast Storm. This is Kevin Wallace, double CCIE and Cisco Press author, and this is episode number 72 of the Broadcast Storm entitled Network Defense Best Practices. You might have heard me talking lately about how CompTIA recently released a new version of their Network Plus exam. The exam number is N10-007, and I recently finished up a complete video course on that new exam, and that's going to be sold through Pearson IT Certification. It's probably going to be released sometime in May, but I thought in this podcast episode, I would share with you one of the topic areas that CompTIA gives us, things that we need to know for the exam. And this particular topic area, they call mitigating network threats, which is really just best practices for protecting ourselves against attacks. So let's take a look at 14 ways in this podcast episode of ways that we can better defend ourselves against malicious users out there. Number one is signature management. If you have, for example, an intrusion detection system sensor, an IDS, or an intrusion prevention system sensor, an IPS, or even something that detects malware or viruses, you need to make sure that those signatures, those databases that recognize malicious traffic, that those are kept up to date. I know it seems like common sense, but common sense is not always common practice. So this should be part of our routine. Uh, Do we have a schedule time to do signature management and update those databases. Number two on our list is device hardening. This is where we apply a collection of best practice recommendations to different network devices to make them more difficult to penetrate by a malicious user. For example, maybe we don't want somebody, even a legitimate user, to telnet into a router for administrative purposes. We want them to secure shell. So we might disable Telnet, only enable secure shell for administrative access. By the way, in the Cisco world, Cisco routers support something called auto-secure. If you turn on that feature, it automatically enables a collection of best practice recommendations. It does a lot to the router to better secure it. Third on the list is changing our native VLAN. Think about an IEEE 802.1Q trunk. On that trunk we typically add four bytes to a frame to identify, among other things, to what VLAN that frame belongs. But there's one VLAN, it's called the native VLAN, that doesn't have any tags. It doesn't have those four tag bytes added. And by default, it's usually VLAN 1. And by default, usually on an Ethernet switch, all of our ports belong to VLAN 1. Well, that doesn't seem optimal. All of our ports belong to this untagged VLAN. That means that a malicious user could connect into a switch port and suddenly by just sending untagged traffic into that switch port, they have access to all those devices sitting in VLAN 1. It's a best practice to change your native VLAN to something else and then not put production devices in that new native VLAN. Also, we should define privileged user accounts. If you have somebody new come into your company, do you just say, hey, here is the enable secret password to all of our routers and switches, go at it? Or do you give them an account? It reminds me of when I went to work down at Walt Disney World in Florida. They had over 500 routers on the property, and my first week on the job, they gave me my own account to log in. And with my account, I logged into this AAA server, I was able to get to the different routers around the Disney property. But can you imagine... If they just said, here's the enable secret password, and then somebody leaves the company, and you have to go update the enable secret password on 500 plus devices, that doesn't scale. So it's a better idea to define privileged user accounts and just handing out a quote-unquote master admin password to everybody. And another best practice that CompTIA gives us is file integrity monitoring. 
there may be certain files that you have on a server. These might be critical system files. These might be financial records. But sensitive information, we'll say, or critical information, we don't want somebody to maliciously corrupt or alter those files. So you can actually run a service to monitor those files to make sure that they do not get altered except by authorized parties. Yet another best practice is role separation. Let's say that in your environment you have a help desk and end users call into the help desk to get help with a variety of things. Their IP phone doesn't work. Their email account doesn't work. They're not able to get to this website. Well, those are lots of different systems. That's a wide knowledge base a help desk person has to have. And to better diagnose what's going on with the end user, they might need access to those systems. But they might not be an expert in voice over IP communications, and they might not know how to set up a route plan and apply a calling search space and a partition just like they should. Maybe we should leave those configuration details to the people in that department. But still, the help desk personnel, it would be beneficial to them, perhaps, to have read-only access to those different systems, lots of different systems. That's an example of role separation. You give permissions to systems based on the role of the user. Next is to have a honey pot or a honey net in your network. Let's say a malicious user is coming into our network and they might run some sort of a network vulnerability scanner like Nmap looking for what IP addresses are responding to pings and then what services are running on those devices. Do I know about vulnerabilities on any of those services? Let's try to exploit one of those vulnerabilities and get into the system. Well, what you could do is set up something called a honeypot, something that looks sweet to the attacker that will be a system that's not thoroughly secured. It does have services that have vulnerabilities, and the attacker is going to be able to more easily get into that system. And by attracting them into this distractor, if you will, they're going to spend their time looking around and trying to find what they hope to be critical information or sensitive information or valuable information on this server that you've set up. But this server you've set up does not contain any of that type of information. It's just a place to attract the attacker so we can, number one, keep them busy on something that's not important to the company, and also to monitor them to see what sorts of attacks are launching against our network so we can better defend our network. And instead of having just a honeypot where we have one system, we could have a honey net. We have an entire subnet full of devices that are just distractors, and the attacker could spend a lot of time there without actually compromising our stuff. While we, at the same time, know that, hey, we're under attack, we need to defend against what this attacker's throwing at us. But we shouldn't leave the responsibility of identifying uh, security weaknesses to attackers. We should do that proactively. That's the concept behind another best practice, which is called penetration testing, or pen testing, P-E-N, pen testing for short. This is where we might hire an external third party whose job is to get into our systems, to gain access to resources to which they shouldn't have access. And then they come back and report to us, here's what we did. Here's how we got in. Here's how to better defend yourself. Another best practice is network segmentation. We've already talked about VLANs. That's one way of getting network segmentation. We put different resources or different departments in different VLANs, different broadcast domains. That's going to give us a level of security, but we can take it to another level. Think about a firewall. Oftentimes on a firewall, we have an inside zone which is our corporate network, and we've got an outside zone, the big scary internet. But we might have some resources that we want publicly accessible. If we have, let's say, a corporate email server or a corporate web server that we want to be publicly accessible, if that's part of our enterprise network, if a malicious user were to come in and gain access and gain control of that system, 
through some sort of vulnerability, then they might be able to use that as a hopping off point to attack other devices within the enterprise network. To help prevent that type of thing from happening, on a firewall we can have another zone. It's often called a DMZ, a demilitarized zone. In this DMZ, we can place maybe our corporate email server and DNS server and web server, resources that we want to be accessible by the public. That way, if the malicious user on the internet does, hopefully they won't, but if they do gain access and control to one of our systems in the DMZ, they will not be able to use that as a hopping off point to attack our internal resources because the DMZ is in a different zone than our internal resources. Another best practice to better secure our networks is not really securing from a malicious user, it's securing from a link failure or a switch failure, and it's STP spanning tree protocol. We love redundancy in our network. But the thing is, with switches at layer two, we could get into an issue. If we just interconnect haphazardly a bunch of layer two switches, and we put in redundant connections, and we say, oh, if this link goes down, here's another link, that'll take over. Well, in the absence of spanning tree protocol, we could run into an issue. We could have something called a broadcast storm. You see, a layer two frame does not have a time to live field like a layer three packet. And if we have a broadcast and it gets into a loop, that's where the name of this podcast comes from, by the way, the broadcast storm, we can have a broadcast storm where that frame is looping endlessly through the network, consuming CPU cycles of all the devices sitting on that subnet. We want to avoid that, and that's what Spanning Tree Protocol can do for us. So let's make sure we are running Spanning Tree Protocol if we have Layer 2 redundant connections. Staying on the topic of switches, here's another best practice that CompTIA gives us. They recommend we enable something that they're referring to as FloodGuard. And FloodGuard means that we're going to prevent a malicious user from attaching to a switch port and sending us a bunch of frames all claiming to be from different MAC addresses. They send one frame and say, I'm from this MAC address. They send another frame and they say, I'm really from this MAC address. And then number three, uh, just kidding, I'm really from this MAC address. If they do that thousands or tens of thousands of times, they can very quickly fill up the Ethernet switch's MAC address table. And then when a legitimate user attaches to the switch, their MAC address is not going to be learned by the switch because its MAC address table is full. So what happens if we're trying to send a frame to that device that just attached? The switch doesn't know where it lives. So the switch is going to flood the frame destined for that PC out of all ports other than the port the frame was received on, including the attacker's port. And the attacker might be sitting there with their packet capture utility and they're capturing all these frames. We can prevent that in the Cisco world by using something called switch port security, where we could go in and say, here is the maximum number of MAC addresses that are learnable off of a particular port. We might just set it to one MAC address. We could do that. We could even say what the allowed MAC address or MAC addresses are. And getting back to spanning tree protocol, here's another best practice recommendation, and that is to enable something called BPDU guard. Remember what a BPDU is, a bridge protocol data unit? Those are messages that are exchanged by switches and they're used to form a loop-free spanning tree, we use the bridge ID that gets communicated inside of the BPDU to elect a root bridge, sort of the central point to which all other switches point back to. But on some switch ports, we might not want to be going through the 15 seconds of listing and the 15 seconds of learning that happens when a PC plugs into a previously empty port. Notice we didn't spend 20 seconds in blocking because the port was not currently active. So it's a 30-second delay when we plug in a PC before it goes active. 
And sometimes a PC will fail to communicate on the network because of that. We plug in a PC and it boots up really quick because maybe it has an SSD instead of a spinning hard drive and it sends out a DHCP discover broadcast saying, hey, can somebody give me an IP address? And it hears crickets. Nobody responds. And that's because its port hasn't gone active yet. And since it does not hear a reply, it says, well, I guess I'm going to have to just self-assign myself an address using an APIPA address. We don't want that. It's not going to be able to communicate with anybody off of its subnet, or most people on its subnet for that matter. So what we commonly do on ports connecting out to end devices is enable PortFast, which says, I promise, I promise, Mr. Switch, I'm only going to plug an end user device to this port. Please don't make me wait through the 15 seconds of listening and the 15 seconds of learning. I'd love it if you would go active almost immediately. And the Switch port says, all right, I trust you. I'll go active almost immediately. And maybe for a time, we have a PC plugged into a port that's configured for PortFast. But then things happen, people move, and that port sits vacant for a time. And then we're installing a new switch, and we say, oh, here's a vacant port on this other switch. And we plug a brand new switch into a switch port that was configured for PortFast. Now we're setting ourselves up for a layer 2 topological loop. Now, in all fairness, just because we have PortFast turned on does not mean that we've disabled a spanning tree protocol on that port. We haven't. We've just taken down our delays on that port. So if we do plug in a switch that's connected to yet another switch, we might temporarily have a layer 2 topological loop, but that port configured for port fast, it will see that, hey, this is a problem, and it's going to go into blocking. However, there still could be a brief period where we have this network disruption. We want to prevent even the slightest hint of a disruption if something like that were to happen. That's what BPDU Guard does. As soon as it sees the very first BPDU coming from that switch, it says, whoa, I've been lied to. You promised me that you were only going to connect an end user device, and now I'm looking at this BPDU coming in. Something's up. So as a result, I'm going to go into an error disable state, and you're going to need to fix the issue before I'm going to be active again. And then to get out of the error disable state, we can shut the port down and bring it back up, and hopefully we will resolve the issue by then. But that's BPDU guard, and we should only apply that to ports enabled for PortFast. Another spanning tree defense mechanism is root guard. Maybe we in our design say that this switch is our primary root bridge. It's the central point of the network to which everybody points back. And if it goes down, here's another switch that I've designated as my secondary root bridge that's going to take over. So we know which switches we want to potentially be root bridges. And we know that there are some ports on our switch off of which we should never expect to see a root bridge. This means if a malicious user adds a switch to the network, and they artificially lower their bridge ID, they set their bridge priority really, really low in an attempt to become the root bridge so they can have traffic flowing through them and they can capture that traffic. To prevent a malicious user from attaching to the network like that, we can enable root guard on any port that should never have a root bridge seen off of it. If a superior BPDU, in other words, a BPDU that would normally take over as the root bridge, if a superior BPDU is seen, on a port that's enabled for root guard, that port is going to go into a root inconsistent state. And it's not going to allow that superior BPDU to take over and for that newly introduced switch to become the root bridge. And it's going to stay in that root inconsistent state until those superior BPDUs stop. And the 14th, the best practice, I think that was 14 on our list, is DHCP snooping. Remember how DHCP works? A PC boots up and it sends out a discover broadcast to say, hey, is there anybody out there that can give me an IP address? And we've got a corporate DHCP server and it might be on a different subnet. We might have the IP helper address feature enabled to allow our router to forward that broadcast 
to the subnet containing the DHCP server. But that corporate DHCP server, when it gets the Discover broadcast, it's going to send back an offer message. And then we request an IP address with a request, and it sends us one in an acknowledgement. It's the DORA process, D-O-R-A, Discover Offer Request Acknowledgement. But let's say that a malicious user brought up their own server, and they were running DHCP on that server. And they plugged into our subnet. When we send out a DHCP Discover broadcast, that malicious DHCP server might respond first. It might say, yes, here's your IP address, here's your subnet mask, and here's your default gateway. And they might make themselves the default gateway. They might be tricking our device into going through them so they can capture our traffic on the way to the internet. To prevent that type of thing from happening, we can enable the DHCP snooping feature. What this does is it allows us to say which switch ports are going to be trusted and which are untrusted. So the port that leads to the actual corporate DHCP server will set it to trusted. Other ports will set those to untrusted. That means if we send out a DHCP Discover broadcast and it goes to the corporate DHCP server, as well as to the rogue DHCP server that the malicious user just brought up on the network, when that malicious DHCP server tries to respond with the offer message, that offer message is going to be dropped as it tries to come back into the switch because it's coming into a port that's labeled as untrusted for DHCP snooping. And that's a look at 14 best practices to better secure our network that CompTIA identifies for us that we need to know for the new Network Plus exam. And I think I mentioned earlier that I just recently, for Pearson IT certification, finished a complete video course covering, and I was meticulous about this, I cover every single topic that CompTIA lists on their exam blueprint. And I'm recording this podcast episode in April of 2018, and the course I don't think is scheduled to be released until next month, sometime in May. I don't know the exact date, but you can pre-order now. And I want to give you a discount as being a broadcast room listener. So here's what you can do. You can go to netpluscourse.kevin.live. Again, netpluscourse, that's P-L-U-S. It's not the plus sign. So netpluscourse, one word, dot kevin dot live. Not dot com, but dot live. Netpluscourse.kevin.live. And I'll include a link in the show notes for that as well. And that will take you to the page where you can pre-order this course from Pearson. And as a thank you for listening to the broadcast room, I want to give you a discount. Right before I recorded this podcast episode, I shot off an email to a buddy I've got over at Pearson, and I said, hey, I'd really like to reward my podcast listeners with a 50% discount. Can you hook me up with a discount code? And I've requested a discount code of Wallace50, W-A-L-L-A-C-E-5-0. I'll have that in the show notes as well. But if you enter the discount code of Wallace50 during checkout, you're going to get 50% off of this brand new course. I really think you'll enjoy it. And on that note, we'll wrap up episode number 72 of The Broadcast Storm.